and welcome to Beyond the Breakers, a podcast about shipwrecks, loss, and lessons learned from maritime disasters. My name is Taylor, and I'll be your host. First off, we want to say thank you for everybody for downloading and listening. We really, really appreciate it, and we want to do something special to celebrate 1,000 downloads. Uh, we need your questions. We'd like to do a Q&A episode in a few weeks to celebrate that. Um, we'll start compiling those now. Uh, we're still you know, a few weeks away from probably doing that, but we want to go ahead and kind of ask for those. You could literally send it to us on any of our social medias or email, and I'll shout those out real quick. Twitter, we are at beyond underscore breakers. Instagram, beyond the breakers podcast. And our email is beyond the breakers pod at gmail.com. And in addition to that, we also have a Patreon, patreon.com slash beyond the breakers. As I always say, the podcast will always be ad free and money from the Patreon just goes to web hosting, research materials, that kind of thing. Um, so you can get a hold of us on any of those platforms that you'd like. It could be a shipwreck question, a non shipwreck question, whatever you want to ask us, we will discuss on the show. Uh, with all of that out of the way, I'll go ahead and bring in uh, our co-host, Tanner. Tanner, how are you doing? Oh, pretty good, all things considered. Been a busy couple weeks. I think we mentioned it on the last episode. I was in, I was in the middle of a move, uh, so we're a little bit more settled down now. Nice, good. Yeah, I know. It's, uh, it's nice to have a little more space and everything. And more space, but no air conditioning is, is going to be a problem. That is unfortunate. No, I couldn't do the no air conditioning. It's a good thing that it's only hot in Wisconsin for like one month we, out of the year. We have a lot of fans going right now. Um, and, <laughs> and it's only May. That's the depressing part of this. Is that I'm, Did you know that there was no air conditioning ahead of time, or was that a surprise? Not really. We kind of agreed to move here sight unseen just because of the space. So it's going to be a good thing overall, but that's going to be a challenge to work around. Right now, I am, I'm going to record this episode shirtless and sweating onto my keyboard. So <laughs> for the fans who are listening, think about that while you listen to this episode. That's a great mental image. Um, and we'll, uh, with that being out of the way, let's go ahead and, and roll into it. So this week, we are discussing uh, one of the big ones, actually. This is as close to the Titanic as we're ever going to get. I don't feel like there's any possible bit of content that I could add to regarding the Titanic. But I do feel like her sister ship is something that we should talk about. So this week, we'll be doing the Britannic. However, I do have to interject here. Would we ever consider watching the movie Titanic? Uh, for that could be a great for bonus Patreon. Content. Yeah, that would be a great Patreon goal. Okay. If we ever get to the point where we're making like a hundred dollars a month on Patreon, I will subject both of us to watching Titanic, and we will do a bonus episode about it. You've seen it but, though, right? I've seen it a long time ago, okay. and I don't want to watch it again, but I will All right. for money. All right. So let's discuss the interesting ship in the Olympic class, the Britannic. She was part of the White Star Alliance, as we've kind of already alluded to, and she's part of the Olympic class. So she's very similar to the Olympic and the Titanic. Britannic is completed on December 12th, 1915, and she's the third ship of that class. And she's actually the largest ship in the class. She's 882 feet long, 94 feet wide, and drew 34 feet of water. And when at maximum capacity, there's a about 3,300 people on board. So it's a pretty massive vessel and she's mm -hmm. able to hold a lot of people. She's built by Harlan and Wolf, who a lot of people know from the Titanic. They also built the HMS Hood. A lot of the famous British ships are, are built in that shipyard. Actually, I need to throw something in here 
and I, I think it fits here. I was curious. I, I was uh, wondering about this. Like a lot of these old ship companies, I was wondering, like, do they still exist? <laughs> That's a good question. And I discovered that, yes, in fact, Harlan and Wolf does still exist as a company. They're still operational, uh, but they have recently, right, recently, in the, in the past few decades, uh, switched less uh, less of building actual ships because there's kind of less demand for that kind of thing. Moving over to ship repair and then, interestingly, offshore renewable energy. They do a lot with, like, wind power. Um, Interesting. I guess it's a lot of the same skill set to create some of those offshore wind farms or, you know, oil exploration, mm-hmm. that kind of thing. It's a lot of heavy industry offshore. So Yeah, so I figured uh, shout, out to, uh, shout out to Harland and Wolf. Um, big uh, H&W fan. Yeah, if they want to sponsor us, we're happy. <laughs> All right. So, like I said, they're in the same, this vessel is in the same class as the Titanic, but she's still under construction when the Titanic sinks. And because of that, they actually make some changes. They actually uh, try to make this vessel more safe. So the ship's beam was increased to 94 feet. So she's a little bit wider. And this is to allow for like a double hull near the engine and boiler rooms. So basically they're, they're going to make this thing beefier than Mm -hmm. the Titanic was. She's also given more powerful engines. Her horsepower is increased to 18,000 from 16,000. And there's also a new uh, lifeboat launch system. So it sort of pivots out more. And in theory, you should be able to launch a lifeboat from almost any degree of list. Mm -hmm. That's something we've talked about quite a bit on the show that, you know, lifeboats are great in theory when it's calm water and the ship is, you know, even when you don't need a lifeboat. Right. Like in a scenario where you don't need a lifeboat, they're very easy to launch. And then they also increase her lifeboat capacity. She actually had the capacity for uh, enough lifeboats to handle 3,600 people. So she was actually able to – her lifeboat capacity was higher than her, like, carrying capacity, basically. So the the opposite of the Titanic Mm -hmm. scenario. All right, so 1915 in Europe. What's going on there? What do you What do you know about 1915 in Europe? There's a little, a uh, little, a uh, little scuffle. Uh, there is a scuffle going going on. on. <laughs> the scuffle to end all scuffles. I think they called it the Great Scuffle. Mm-hmm. So because of this, um, on November 13th, 1915. So while the vessel's still you know being constructed, Britannica is requisitioned by the British government. There's a massive demand for hospital space, primarily due to the Gallipoli campaign, Mm -hmm. which I know the American audience may not know a lot about um, unless you're really into World War One. But for the British and Anzac forces, it's a complete disaster. Uh, They're fighting the Turks and the Turks are prepared for that. It's it's actually like an amphibious landing, which is something you don't really think about in 1915. Mm -hmm. And a quick side note for me, if you want to like kind of hear more stuff about that. There's a lot of great documentaries, but there's also a really good song titled and the band played waltzing Matilda by Eric Bogle. It's a pretty good song kind of documenting what went on and uh, just how tragic that situation was. That campaign actually results in about 300,000 casualties. So it's a, there's a lot of demand for hospital space. Yeah. That's, that's such an interesting campaign in the context of the war and in the, the context of history. Like you mentioned the song, there's also some really good movies about it. There's a movie from like the I don't know what year it's from like the early eighties. It's a Mel Gibson movie, young Mel Gibson, called Gallipoli, uh, that obviously is very dramatized, but it covers it pretty well. That's definitely worth checking out. 
Mm-hmm. Um, there's also a uh, there's there's a more recent it's like a um kind of a docudrama type thing. I think it's technically a Turkish movie and it's just called Gallipoli, but the at least the English version is narrated by Sam Neill and I think Jeremy Irons also. Interesting. Um I th- it's a really interesting campaign um to see like amphibious assaults and stuff going on in 1915 and mm-hmm. even how much it's how it differs from even like Normandy or something like that, mm-hmm. even 30 years later. Yeah. It's, it's really interesting and uh, definitely worth checking out. It's definitely something that um, although the British forces are heavily involved, it's I think collectively more remembered by the Anzac forces in New Zealand, Australia, because proportionally they suffered like the a brunt of the casualties in that campaign. And then also just, just to cover the other side of the coin here, like, that's such a huge moment in the history of Turkey. Mm-hmm. Um, this is the sort of last gasp, basically, of the Ottoman Empire, showing that they can still kind of they can still do stuff. They can still roll with the big boys. In World well, War. what uh, at the beginning of the war, what do they refer to Turkey as the the, the sick, sick the man sick man of Europe. of Europe? And yeah, this is like this is a great example of how you read some stuff about this. And there's this concept that you know Turkey, the Ottomans are just going to sort of fall over, and that definitely doesn't happen. It's a massive thing in, in Turkish history also. This this is kind of the spur that gets um, Mustafa Kemal Ataturk into more visible position, and then he eventually creates the modern state of Turkey. So anyway, kind of a sidetrack about the Gallipoli campaign. But Yeah, if you guys can't tell, we both have an interest in World War One history. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right, so back to Britannic. She leaves Liverpool on December 23rd, 1915, and she's bound for the port of Mordros in the Aegean Sea. She has a crew of 675, and she's captained by Charles Bartlett. Uh, a little bit more about him. He actually has a nickname of Iceberg Charlie, Due to being able to detect my icebergs from miles away, he kind of has a reputation for being a really safe captain, a really aware captain, the opposite of uh, what happened to the Titanic. Basically, he is able to see, apparently detect icebergs like uh, better than the average captain. And he actually serves as an aide-de-camp to King George V after World War I. So he is a man who knows people and is respected and uh, thought pretty highly of, even after this incident. He's mm-hmm. not, you know, a lot of times you see a captain that's kind of, they're, they're kind of blamed for an incident like this. And that doesn't really happen in this case. He's still very highly regarded. Iceberg Charlie sounds like it would be the nickname for like a closer in baseball. <laughs> like just someone who will just come and absolutely just, just shut you down. Iceberg I, Charlie. I actually like that. I feel like it's one that could go either way. Like you either have hit an iceberg or you're really good at not hitting icebergs. Yeah. But like, um, and then a fun fact about him, he's actually played by John Reese Davies, who uh, is Gimli the Dwarf in the Lord of the Rings movies in the uh, 2000 movie Britannic. Mm-hmm. Gimli, son of Gloin. It's very fortunate, actually, for the Britannic that he didn't try to take them through the mines of Moria. <laughs> that's great for like the three people who listen who are listening that'll that'll get the lord of their maybe it's things. more than that but anyway <laughs> um sorry so also on board there are 101 nurses 336 non-commissioned officers and 52 officers um also kind of another change from the standard you know passenger liner she's painted with a large red cross and a long green stripe the length of the ship and this is to indicate that she's a hospital ship and not a valid military target. So, you know, complying with the quote-unquote rules of war, you wouldn't actively be targeting this vessel. She's mm-hmm. not a combat ship. She's only there for medical and humanitarian reasons. Right. And actually, this was an interesting detail because, like, 
I was looking at some like colorized versions mm-hmm. of the Britannic, uh, the images, and it just didn't look at all what I had in my head. Like you kind of have that like black and white picture in your head. Uh, I was just imagining right. like the Titanic. But yeah, seeing this big green stripe with these red crosses on it, it just gave me a very different mental image of what the ship actually looked like as it was sinking. Yeah, we'll definitely try to get some colorized pictures posted because it is it's not quite what you think. And especially for a ship that's acting in a war, like it's very much made to be seen. Mm -hmm. So she would make two more trips for the British government before being returned to White Star Lines on June 6th, 1916. White Star was paid 75,000 pounds to assist in converting her back to a passenger liner. So that's something you have to keep in mind, too. She's being built as a passenger liner originally. And part of the way through the process, they start, you know, converting her to a hospital ship. So obviously, you don't need a grand dining room. You need operating theaters and things like that. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of conversion going on there. What ends up happening, though, is that as she's being converted back to a passenger liner, that process is halted. And she's returned to naval service in August of 1916. At that point, she would complete two more trips to the Middle Eastern theater and those passed relatively uneventfully. You know, she would go basically down empty, pick up soldiers, and then bring them back to England. So nothing too eventful there as far as, you know, working in a war. That brings us to her final journey and why we're talking about her today. On November 12th, 1916, she leaves Southampton, bound for the Mediterranean port of Limnos. She arrives in Naples on the 17th of November to replenish her coal and water. And that's pretty standard. That's at the standard place that she stops. And she's actually kept in port until the 19th due to poor weather. Captain Bartlett, again, he's known as a pretty safe captain. He's not going to put the vessel in a dangerous situation. He doesn't, you know, he doesn't want to be delayed, but he's willing to be delayed for the safety of his ship. But there's a break in the weather in the afternoon of the 19th. And Captain Bartlett takes advantage of that to proceed towards his destination. That brings us to 0800 hour of November 21st, very specific time on a very specific date. (laughs) Uh, She's steaming through the Kia Channel near the southern tip of the Attica Peninsula and right off of the island of Kia. At 8.12, the vessel is suddenly rocked by an explosion on her starboard side between holds two and three on the forward section of the ship. So definitely the forward third, large explosion. They don't know what's happening. Um, You know, it strikes without warning. I'm going to kind of go through some of the events that happen, but it's really important to keep in mind that all of the things I'm describing are happening at the same time or really quick together. This is this is a really quick story as far as how quickly everything comes together. Mm -hmm. But there's a lot going on. So, like I just said, it's not immediately clear what caused the explosion. Crew in the forward part of the ship immediately springs into action because it's apparent that something major has happened. In the aft section, many people were a little less alarmed. They actually thought that maybe they had struck a smaller vessel and only sustained minor damage. But a ship that large, if you can feel it rocking and being pushed around, like something major has happened. Like everyone immediately is aware that something's going on. This was actually a a really interesting detail to me, the fact that there's such a different response in the fore and the aft sections. And again, like many things in the story, it really highlights how massive this ship is. Right. The fact that people in the front immediately know something has exploded, but in the back, it's like, "Eh, maybe we hit something. 
So Captain Bartlett immediately recognizes that they're in a pretty critical situation. He immediately takes control and begins to do a damage assessment and see what's going on. Almost immediately after the explosion, it's reported that the first four holds are flooding. And this is followed by reports that the boilerman's crew tunnels that connect to boiler room six are damaged and water is also flooding that area. So pretty quickly, it's apparent that there's damage below the waterline and that there's free, free water coming on board. Bartlett ordered an SOS signal be sent, and this message is actually received by various vessels. However, unbeknownst to the crew of the Britannic, the receiving wires have been damaged in the explosions. They're never able to receive an acknowledgement. They're only sending out messages. They cannot receive any messages. In addition to the stress, the distress messages, uh, the captain orders the watertight doors to be shut and to prepare lifeboats for possible evacuation. So like we like to talk about, uh, this is a really good example of crew and bridge resource management. He's in control of the situation. He's immediately getting assessments of the situation, and he's having people spring into action and prepare to do the things that they may or may not need to do, but they're prepared to do them. Mm -hmm. The crew is actually really well drilled, and they react, and they know what to do. They, They know how to comply with the orders that they're being given, which is a really big component in all of this. So because of the damage, there's actually six compartments now that are flooded. Um, If you think of the ship as being divided up into sections, Britannica is able to survive basically with six compartments being flooded. And this is partly due to her design changes. Uh, Titanic is actually designed to survive four flooded compartments, whereas Britannica can have six compartments flooded. So she's basically at that limit at this point. But in theory, this should be survivable still. Let's see. The bulkhead between boiler rooms five and four remained functional, and this should have limited the damage to six compartments, like I just said. However, there's an unaccounted for variable in all of this. Variables. Always with the variables on this show. <laughs> like, like we say, n- these disasters <laughs> almost never happen for one clear reason. There's always a chain of events. And actually, this is a similar thing to what happened on the uh, Empress of Ireland, Nurses had opened portals in the lower levels of the ship to provide circulation to the ship's hospital ward areas. As the vessel begins to list, these portals are submerged. And within minutes of the explosion, they're allowing water into areas that would have never otherwise been flooded. That's a problem. (laughs) Yeah, I'm just going to say right now, sitting in this stuffy, hot apartment trying to get any relief I can, I would probably have those portholes open, too. So. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine that the, the you know, bowels of the ship are extremely stuffy and hot and stale. But there's actually a standing order from Captain Bartlett to not have these open <laughs> for this exact reason, because they're in a combat zone. And you don't want to have like more opportunity for water to come in. And it seems silly. You wouldn't think that a little, you know, open window would cause that much of a problem. But it is literally the thing that prevents the safety systems from working properly. On that note. If my apartment was possibly going to hit a mine, I would probably close my windows. Or torpedo. We're not sure yet. Yeah. <laughs> so it's been stated that within 10 minutes of the explosion, that Britannic was in the same condition as Titanic was one hour after hitting the iceberg. So, again, this is all happening really quickly. There's not a lot of time to react and evaluate things. 15 minutes after the explosion, Britannic's developed a substantial starboard list. And again, like we said, this is allowing water through the open portals. Captain Bartlett 
makes a decision, which is pretty key in this scenario to, you know, you have to act, you have to do something. And he's going to attempt to beach the vessel on the island of Kia, which is positioned to his port side. So his goal is basically to get the vessel to a spot where it won't sink. If you can beach it, then, you know, you can coordinate rescue efforts later. But that would be the safest thing rather than having to evacuate the boat. This is complicated by the fact that the vessel's steering gear is knocked out by the force of the blast. She can't use her rudder to steer. You know, you're not just turning the wheel and controlling the ship anymore. And Bartlett countered this by ordering the port side propeller to be run at a higher speed. And, you know, he's basically directing the vessel with its own momentum. Mm -hmm. So in all that chaos, he's still able to think clearly and issue that order. However, there's still a problem. As he runs the vessel at a higher speed, more water is forced into the ship through the hole that has been left by the explosion. So he's actually sinking the ship faster by moving. Mm -hmm. So he kind of has to do a calculation of what, you know, can I even reach where I need to get to beach the ship? Or am I going to sink it quicker by trying to do that? Mm -hmm. This is where we have to talk about something that's a little fortunate in this scenario is that in this trip, they're theater bound rather than homebound. The vessel's essentially empty of uh, patients. There's very few on board. That's a good thing. There's a lot less people to evacuate. Uh, you can only imagine what the scene would be like if there's people who, you know, you, they can't walk, they mm-hmm. can't see, and you're having to evacuate them into lifeboats. That that would be one of, like, the worst maritime disaster stories in the history of maritime disasters. Right. If they had to evacuate patients. But they really didn't have to do a lot of that. Um, most people were able to be evacuated with relative ease. So that's another thing that's playing into his decision-making. He's able to gamble a little bit and try to beach this thing because he knows they can evacuate relatively quickly. Mm -hmm. This gets us to the point where some of the crew that are leading the uh, operation of the lifeboats are becoming worried because the captain is trying to beach the vessel. The vessel's continuing to list. It's riding lower in the water. And this is actually a little bit of a breakdown in the... uh, crew resource management, Uh, not necessarily the captain's fault, but it's people taking initiative when they probably shouldn't. Mm -hmm. They prematurely released two lifeboats on the port side while the vessel's still in motion. And there's a reason that you don't do that. There's a really important reason that you want to release lifeboats when you're basically stationary. The result of doing this is that the lifeboats are sucked towards the partially exposed propeller. (sighs) They're promptly destroyed. And if you can think about what a churning massive copper propeller does to a lifeboat it's going to do the same thing to the people in the lifeboat that's like when we've talked about before about how in all of these or most of these stories there's like there's a whole buffet of different ways to die Mm -hmm. and this is just another one of them yeah this is one that it was entirely avoidable but people didn't listen to the orders that were there was never an order given to launch lifeboats Mm -hmm. at that time And actually, this is where a majority of the deaths occur in this story. I don't have a solid number for how many people are killed as a result of this. But needless to say, out of the deaths, this is where a lot of them occur. Mm -hmm. So Captain Bartlett is able to get the vessel stopped before any other lifeboats are lost. And the official order to launch lifeboats comes at 835. By 850, 35 lifeboats have been launched. A majority of those on board have been evacuated. Bartlett decides to pause the evacuation and again attempt to beach the vessel now that he's got most of the people off. However, at 9 o'clock, the captain's informed that the flooding has increased due to the forward momentum of the ship, and he knows that 
he has to issue the final order to abandon. An interesting part to me in this is kind of what happens next to Captain Bartlett. He literally walks off the bridge and into the water. Like that's how long he's stuck with it Mm -hmm. is that the bridge is basically at water level and he's able to just basically swim off the bridge and into a collapsible lifeboat. Mm -hmm. And he continues to coordinate the emergency response from that point on. We've talked about quite a few of these at this point, and you definitely see excellent leadership from someone like the captain of the Lady Elgin, things like that. And I think it just, it stands in contrast to like the uh, Korean ferry that we talked about, how Captain Bartlett doesn't even seem to be concerned that there's water rising on the bridge. Like he's still coordinating the rescue efforts. Mm -hmm. He's doing the thing that you're supposed to do as the captain of the ship. Right. Yeah. With the, with stories like that, we read that, you know, the captain's one of the first five people rescued compared to this, where literally riding the ship down into the depths. The vessel continues to roll into its starboard side while sinking lower in the water. And it's interesting that the bow actually strikes the bottom of the seafloor before she's even fully submerged. The reason for that, Britannic is longer than the sea is deep. The water here is about 300 feet. And as we said, Britannic's over 800 feet long. So she's kind of almost standing in the water with her nose digging into the the seabed. It's quite the sight, actually. Such a crazy detail for me, just because it it highlights both how big the ship is, but then also that they're not really sailing in that deep of water. Yeah, Um, I mean, they're they're literally within sight of land. Yeah. So she's finally fully submerged at 9.07, and that is only 55 minutes after the initial explosion. It's extremely quick in one of these scenarios. Um, I don't know the actual numbers. I think Titanic was around three hours or something like that. And this is 55 minutes. Mm. Uh, We're going to talk about one of the people on board now. Violet Jessup, and she's acting as a stewardess on board. And uh, we'll go ahead and read one of her quotes. She dipped her head a little, then a little lower and still lower. All of the deck machinery fell into the sea like a child's toy. Then she took a fearful plunge, her stern rearing hundreds of feet into the air until the final roar. She disappeared into the depths, the noise of her going resounding through the water with undreamt of violence. It's a pretty descriptive scene of just the sheer like brutality of that situation of watching, you know, tons of steel and metal be twisted and pulled and, you know, Mm -hmm. falling into the ocean. And an interesting thing about uh, Violet Jessup, she was on board both of the sister ships of the Britannic. She's on board the Olympic when she's involved in a collision with a British Navy vessel. And she's also on board Titanic when she sinks. So one of the interesting stories that I actually read about her is that obviously she's already been on Titanic. So she's done this. She's evacuated on a lifeboat before. She grabs a few of her possessions. Um, I think she grabs like a prayer book. She grabs an alarm clock, that kind of thing. She also makes sure to grab a roll from like the galley area. Because <laughs> when she had evacuated Titanic, they had been in lifeboats for hours. Like a bread roll? Yeah, like a like a like a piece of bread. And she had remembered that being, you know, evacuating Titanic, they had been in lifeboats for hours and people had been hungry. And she thought to herself that if I'm gonna do this again, I'm gonna bring some food. And that just is such a you have to have such a unique life experience to even have that thought, to mm-hmm. think that, hey, the ship's sinking, but I am gonna grab something to eat just in case. Yeah. <laughs> I, I liked that story. It's a fun story. So there's multiple factors here that work in the favor of the survivors. First, the weather's relatively warm and relatively calm. 
that always aids in uh, rescue efforts. Most of the stories where a lot of people survive, the weather's good. We go back to the story of the Milwaukee, where clearly men were able to get off of it, but the weather is so cold and nasty that all we find are a few bodies in lifeboats. Mm-hmm. There's also an immediate response from rescue vessels. The first people on the scene are Greek fishermen. Again, you're right by the coast. You know, there's other boats around. And a lot of these fishermen are able to, you know, help immediately. Next, the HMS Heroic arrives on the scene, and they actually are able to recover 494 survivors. And then at 10 o'clock, the HMS Scourge was on scene within 10 minutes. She's able to recover 339 survivors. Other Royal Navy vessels are able to arrive on scene later, but the ships we mentioned already make up a bulk of the rescue activity. Uh, The point is that within an hour of the ship sinking, most of the survivors have been plucked from the water, and there's a lot of vessels on scene. Another factor is that there's an adequate number of lifeboats on board. Uh, This is a lesson that's learned from the Titanic, where the the Titanic is an entirely avoidable tragedy. If there's enough lifeboats, a majority of the people are going to survive that. The final death toll is pretty miraculous. Only 30 people are killed in this incident, while 1,035 survive. I think that that is, that is a pretty good example of Captain Bartlett's leadership and the preparation of the crew. Like I said, it's hard to know if that lifeboat incident doesn't happen, how many people are killed. It doesn't really say how many people are killed by the explosion, and I don't know that they even really know that number. I know a couple people die um, after being saved from injuries. It goes without saying that if the lifeboat incident doesn't happen, this could be a, a death toll of under 10, possibly. Yeah, this was... this was the craziest part for me because I really did not know anything about the story of the Britannic. I knew the name. I knew it was a sister ship of the Titanic. So I kind of assumed that there was maybe like a slightly lower death toll. I was not expecting it to be this low. Like this was a crazy, crazy low death toll. Yeah. It def- for, a, for a vessel this big with over a thousand people on board, mm-hmm. it's definitely uh, a positive out of this story. So we've kind of talked about how she sank and, you know, physically why she sank, but what sank the Britannic? Immediately after the sinking, it's assumed that the vessel struck by a torpedo. And that makes perfect sense for the time and place, with the sinking of the Lusitania still really fresh in the collective consciousness of the British people. Um, it's really easy to assume that, you know, if the Germans will sink a passenger liner, surely they'll also sink a hospital ship. The Lusitania being a passenger liner that was carrying absolutely no military material. Yeah, ignore the point that, yes, she was <laughs> carrying military paraphernalia. <laughs> German records, however, indicate that submarine U-73 had sunk Britannic with a single mine. So it's a little bit of, like, I guess I would say active versus passive. No one's arguing that the Germans didn't sink it. It's more like... You know, with a torpedo, you're targeting the vessel versus a mine. It's sort of wrong place, wrong time. Mm -hmm. So it's very different circumstances. The vessel is located, or actually, before I get into how we locate it, I'm about to drop some of the biggest names in underwater exploration back to back. So get ready. (laughs) All right, I'm ready. The vessel was located by famed underwater explorer Jacques Cousteau in 1975. And he stated that he felt the vessel was sunk by a torpedo due to damage on the metal plates. Uh, That's really the only evidence he gives. They don't do a ton of research, but I don't know how he could conclude torpedo versus mine when we know it was an explosion. So I would think the buckling of the plates would be pretty similar either way. Right. 
1995, Dr. Robert Ballard, famous for discovering the Titanic, also explores the wreck. He's unable to find any evidence that would point towards a mine. So again, in 1995, we're still not sure. Basically, the Germans are still being blamed for torpedoing a hospital ship, which is something they would do like in the war. It's not like it didn't happen, but the, the German Navy does not claim that they torpedoed the ship. In 2003, Carl Spencer led an investigation to the wreck, and they're actually able to explore inside the vessel. A member of his team discovers that several watertight doors are open, and this suggests that there may have been a change of watch going on when the explosion occurred. And because of that, the frames that the, the watertight doors would sit in may have warped because the doors weren't down during the explosion. And this may have prevented them from functioning properly. So they may have thought that they closed their watertight doors, but they may not have actually shut all the way. So that could be another aggravating factor beyond even just the portholes being open. Again, it's never one thing that causes these incidents. The third thing that they found is they found mine anchors near the wreck via sonar. And this actually backs up the claim by the German Navy. And at this point, we're able to establish that, yes, in all likelihood, the vessel struck a mine. She was in the wrong place at the wrong time. And it wasn't, you know, it wasn't an active act of aggression that sank her, but rather she unfortunately hit a mine. Mm -hmm. It's just really interesting that it took that long to find that. But, you know, with the advances in sonar technology and diving technology, we're finally able to get a little closure in this incident. So kind of some final thoughts on this um, kind of few interesting stories and tidbits that I found while researching. Uh, at the end of World War One, obviously, we all know Germany loses. They're forced to compensate White Star Lines for the loss of the Britannic. The liner SS Bismarck of the Hamburg American Line is given to White Star as a replacement vessel. She's renamed the RMS Majestic and actually holds the title of largest ship in the world until the completion of the SS Normandy in 1935. So I thought it was really interesting that, you know, the German government and military lose the war, but we just, the British government just takes a vessel from a private German company and gives it to White Star Lines as a thank you for their service and as a compensation. Mm. Like, it's just really interesting kind of the dynamics of that and how that works. As we know from history, there's no there's no consequences to this uh, level of punishment yeah, cor- for, for the Germans. Correct. Germany accepts these things and, and never causes any more trouble. Yeah. Um, there's also three people who are on board Titanic and Britannic. We've already discussed one of them, Violet Jessup. But there's two other men who are uh, were on board both. So the first, his name is Archie Jewell, and he worked on board Titanic as a lookout. However, he was off duty when she struck the iceberg. So, you know, he is not at fault or anything. He, it was not his failures that led to the sinking of the Titanic. However, he is interviewed by one of our old friends, Lord Mercy. If you remember him from the Empress of Ireland episode. I do remember him. He is apparently the British Empire's man who investigates shipwrecks. He's the LeBron James of shipwreck (laughs) investigation. So Jewel is actually later killed in World War I when the vessel he is on, the SS Donegal, is sunk by a German submarine. Um, it's kind of an unfortunate fact of the times that being a merchant seaman is a really dangerous job. The next man is Arthur John Priest. Now, he works as a stoker. So he's working down in the engine rooms. He's doing like a pretty nasty, grimy job. And 
it's really hard to believe the story that I'm about to tell you. I think he has to be one of the luckiest men that's ever sailed. (laughs) He survives the sinkings of five different vessels as a stoker working in the engine room. He survives the Titanic, the Astorius, the Alicantra, the Britannic, and the Donegal, where Mr. Jewel is killed. He's actually nicknamed the unsinkable stoker, and he would jokingly claim that he was forced to retire because no one would want to sail with him anymore. <laughs> if I was going to be his next boss, looking at his resume, I'd be like, yeah, I see, I see you've been on, uh, involved in a couple of things here. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know. It's, it's hard to believe that, that uh, he, uh, he was on all those vessels. And I can't believe that he was on the same vessel as uh, Archie Jewell three times. You have to think, like, I hope they knew each other. I hope like, they would see each other in passing, like, oh, no. Right. Not, not you again. <laughs> oh, oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I thought that was an interesting little story there about those people and everything. And, yeah, I think uh, that kind of sums up my portion and everything, everything I wanted to talk about with Britannic. I think it was a really interesting story. Um, it's definitely not talked about as much as Titanic. Obviously, the life or the the lives lost is a, a lot less. And it doesn't have all the romance and everything behind it that Titanic has. But it's also, uh, you know, as far as preservation goes, it's a lot more accessible. There's a lot more photographs of the vessel laying on the seabed and everything. People have been able to salvage a lot of uh, artifacts and things from it. It's a really interesting story. Mm-hmm. And kind of it mirrors Titanic in a way that this vessel was never really able to do the thing it was supposed to do. It, you know, it acted as a hospital ship. It was never the grand passenger liner that it was supposed to be. It mm-hmm. kind of has that unfulfilled uh dream to it the same way that titanic does mm-hmm. but uh yeah what other uh what else do you have what else do you want to discuss anything i think the coolest thing about this story in the context of our show and what we normally present is that we we so often focus on stuff that goes wrong things that should not have happened but here we really have a, a an example of things going right um and that's kind of reflected in the in the pretty low death toll uh, but we have this story where you have kind of a, a shipbuilder reacting to things, saying, this was a problem on the previous vessel, let's make this change. We have relatively good response to what has happened to the vessel. We're getting people into the lifeboats. Mm-hmm. Um, every All of the stuff that normally goes wrong goes right. Right, or, yeah, with the exception of... Of like the lifeboat incident, right. the the portholes and things like that, but there's not like one person's failure mm-hmm. here that causes this incident. It, it literally is the result of being in the wrong place at the wrong time. Mm-hmm. There's just some some refreshing elements to this story where you you kind of see the result rather than the cause of these sort of safety changes. That's good to do occasionally, I think. Yeah, this is definitely one that in some alternate universe, this is one of the worst disasters in maritime history. But I think given the circumstances and what was done in the moment, that was avoided. That's also a good story to tell. Yeah, exactly. And I think it goes to show you how randomness does play a factor in some of these things. The fact that she's headed to pick up wounded and sick soldiers is very fortunate Compared to if this had been four days later and she's returning home, mm-hmm. this is, you know, this could be more tragic than the Titanic was. For it, sure. it truly is one of those things that's amazing. Yeah, no, I think it's a great story to share. And I'm, I'm glad that we're able to do that. Hopefully, uh, 
you know, it spurs some more interest in this. And there's a ton of resources out there. If you're interested in learning more about Britannic, there's a lot of great pictures and uh, video of the wreck. And I'm actually going to post a uh, documentary link in the uh, show notes that uh, we've watched. It's a, it's really, it's a BBC documentary. They do some um, interviews with survivors, families and everything, uh, kind of a lot of primary resources and things like that. So it's a, it's really interesting. It's only about an hour long. So it's something if you're interested in, I would definitely recommend you check it out. With uh, all of that said, please send us your questions for the Q&A in any format you would like. And we really appreciate you guys listening. And unless you've got anything else to add, I think we've uh, wrapped this one up. I think that's it. All right. Thanks for listening, everybody. And we will talk to you next week.